Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. We have a great show lined up tonight uh, talking about the nearshore marine ecosystem again and getting an update on what's happening uh, specifically with the kelp uh, topic that we've visited several times on this show. We are doing this interview in March and it's going to air in April, so we won't be able to take phone calls or questions. I apologize for that. But uh, anytime you want to follow up, on any of the information you hear on this show, you can always go to our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, very pleased to have Laura Rogers-Bennett. Uh, Laura is a senior environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and uh, works out of the Bodega Marine Laboratory where she has a, uh, a laboratory with a number of postdocs and graduate students uh, working on uh, nearshore marine ecosystems. Uh, she's done postdoc at UC Santa Cruz and some other academic institutions, and she's very broadly experienced in uh, nearshore marine ecosystems. So she's just the person I think we want to have on, as Tim said, to talk about what's happened since the heat wave in 2013 and all the changes we've seen with uh, abalone and starfish and kelp and so forth. So, Laura, welcome to our program. Well, thanks very much for having me, Bob. We usually start by asking our guests uh, how they got into the, what they're doing, their line of work. Maybe you could give us a little background on yourself. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City, which is not a place where many uh, marine biologists are from, but my dad uh, was always interested in the uh, ocean and fishing and uh, loved to go hiking in the, in the woods. And so he would always bring uh, me with him. And uh, one summer he taught me how to snorkel um, and we were visiting some coral reefs down in Puerto Rico and, and snorkeling there and we would go uh, fishing in the evenings and get uh, some fish for supper. And that got me really excited about uh, snorkeling and the underwater world. And I decided um, at an early age that I wanted to do marine science and uh, never really strayed from that path. Um, I, I worked up at the University of New Hampshire and was lucky enough to work with uh, Dr. Larry Harris from there, who was a scuba diver and um, specialized in, in cold water diving. And so I got my start there uh, many years ago. My first project was actually working on uh, green sea urchins. And it's uh, funny because now um, we've circled back and I'm again working with with urchins um, in the near shore kelp forest. So got my start with urchins and I'm, and I'm still working on them now. They're, they're fascinating animals. Yeah, they sure are. And uh, the subject of a great deal of attention in the last few years. Absolutely. Yeah. So what specifically are you working on with, uh, with urchins? I presume you're talking about purple urchins now? Yes. So um, as you both know, um, and, and a lot of the listeners, particularly in the Mendocino area, know um, in, in Mendocino and Sonoma counties, 
We are home to uh, very thick, rich bull kelp forests. And in fact, about 90% of the bull kelp forests are in our two counties. And those kelp forests have been heavily impacted by the marine heat wave, as you said earlier in the program, as well as the decline in sea stars uh, due to disease, and now this rapid rise in purple sea urchins um, throughout our region. So um, we've seen this rise in sea urchins. Uh, purple urchin are native to our area, and they undergo these large population fluctuations, booms and busts. But in our part of the world, we hadn't really seen any of that kind of boom and bust behavior in the past. Um, it has been observed in other parts of the world, in Australia, in Japan, um, but, but we hadn't really seen it here. Um, in Southern California, there are areas that have a lot of urchins and they're calling them urchin barrens. Um, and that's indicative of the fact that there's very little algae in those areas because the urchins are eating all the algae, including the, the kelps. So in the south, the urchin barrens are arranged more like a patchwork or mosaic where you've got areas that have intense urchin barrens mixed with areas that are kelp. Um, but when the oceanographic conditions become poor for kelp, um, and we're really trying to think about what makes a good kelp year and what makes a bad kelp year. That's some of the work that we're doing in my lab uh, in collaboration with the folks at the Farallon Institute. Uh, you were talking in the past, I think, with Bill Seideman and Marisol Garcia-Reyes, who works there as well, they um, think about the oceanographic patterns and how that impacts some of our biological systems. So they've done a lot of work with uh, thinking about El Nino events or marine heat waves and how that might influence the productivity of the ocean in terms of copepods and salmon. Um, and so we're collaborating with them now in the lab to think about how the oceanography may be impacting the kelp and what would make a cool ocean year and a good kelp year and what makes a poor kelp year. So uh, Marisol has been working to develop an index of oceanographic conditions, which she calls mochi, which combines all these different oceanographic variables and says, okay, is this going to be a good kelp year or a bad kelp year? And what she's found with our help from some of the folks who look at sa satellite imagery, that when the satellites fly over, they can calculate how much kelp is in the system or in Northern California and get a rough estimate of the canopy cover of the kelp. And so what they've done is developed this long time series now, 34 years of 
what the kelp looked like over time. And then Mari Sol and I have been correlating that with the Mochi index to see if we can predict when we're going to see a bad kelp year. And it looks like we can. Hmm. So it looks like the ocean in the winter and how the, uh, the small spores from the kelp raining down, what the conditions that those spores are seeing in the winter is a fairly good predictor of what the summer kelp canopy will look like. So if conditions are too warm in the winter, then we get very bad kelp growth that summer. And conversely, if it's nice and cool, lots of nitrogen in the system, then it looks like we get a really good kelp year. And that's the kelp itself growing. And then how, how does the urchin uh, grazing play into that? Does that override so, the, the climatic or are they related? Yeah. So what we've been seeing is that in the past, we have this very tight association between winter mochi conditions and the amount of kelp that grows that next summer. But that relationship falls apart in these last five or six years when we've had all this purple urchin moving into the system. So even though 2019 looked like it should have been a fairly good kelp year, uh, we saw that it really wasn't. And that's because we have so many herbivores down there gobbling everything up. And I think you've been able to talk with some of the folks um, up in Mendocino who's been working on this issue, folks from the Noyo Science Center, some of the commercial urchin divers and some of the reef check people, um, you know, looking at uh, what kinds of numbers of urchin there are and seeing if we can't remove some urchin from small pockets of the coastline along Mendocino and Sonoma County. Um, and that's actually the strategy that's laid out in the uh, kelp recovery plan that the people at the Farallons have been working on. And uh, Rietta Homan, who's part of, of the Farallon program there, uh, along with Cynthia Catton, helped to develop this uh, kelp recovery plan. And so this, uh, is this kelp removal, I mean, urchin removal uh, a strategy worked in other places in the world that you're aware of? Uh, they they have been using it in Norway. Uh, they have been using it uh, in Japan and in Australia on the uh, east side of Tasmania. There have been some urchin moving down from some of the warmer waters down into the cooler waters there. And those urchin have also been uh, impacting their kelp forests and their abalone fisheries. Mm -hmm. So that's a strategy that they've been using as well. It's very labor intensive, um, but when these big climate change kinds of impacts come to, to a region, um, it's, it's gonna really require a lot of work to, uh, to really think about how are we going to grapple with some of these issues and, and uh, 
it may be that we need to create these oases as they've been called in the in the recovery plans where we're removing urchin to allow some of that bull kelp to grow uh, so that we can have some of the spores in the system and that they don't disappear from the system so growing a seed crop basically yes exactly so is anybody uh, dealing with the other part of the life cycle of the kelp uh, the gametophytes uh, that produce the spores that settle out uh, is that part of the equation or is it just they're pretty much unstudied yes so that's a very understudied um you know part of the life history so when the when the spores rain down from the big blades that we can see um those spores then will will become the little gametophytes and then they'll produce the um eggs and sperm and they'll get together and grow up into a little tiny sporophyte, which then by summer will be 60 feet tall, 50 feet tall. So they are some of the fastest growing uh, organisms around. They'll be growing, you know, 50, 60 feet in uh, four months or so. And the, those early life history stages, as you mentioned, Bob, are microscopic and we don't know as much as we should about where they are uh, you know what happens to them what are some of the impacts to those life history stages so that's why some of the work looking at the winter conditions is so important because what we're thinking is happening is it's uh, pre-setting the stage for either a good kelp year or a poor kelp year. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, that they may or may not be in, involved in the fluctuations. I mean, it sounds like maybe it's the, it's the uh, spores that are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so much we need to, to learn about them. You know, are they uh, active and overwintering? Do they stay as a as a spore bank? And how many years are they viable for in that form? Um, we know that bull kelp is an annual species, and so it has to come back uh, and reproduce every year. Um, when you think about the giant kelp, which is what we have in Monterey and Southern California, and the blades come off of the stipe all the way up to the surface. That's another canopy forming kelp. It reaches the surface, uh, but that's a perennial. So it lives for many years and has a very big hold fast that you've probably seen if you've been diving in those areas. Um, but our bull kelp is uh, structured very differently. It has that big bullwhip uh, stipe that goes all the way to the surface, and none of the blades grow off that. They grow off that big ball at the surface. And so um, that's where all the spores are, is at the surface. And they have a small holdfast at the bottom. Does that holdfast pretty much die every year? Yes. Yeah, okay, yes. interesting. And, yeah. um, that whole kelp will get washed ashore frequently during our big winter storms on the North Coast. 
yeah, that's a nutrient cycling effect for uh, a lot yes. of a lot of land-based organisms. Uh, exactly. Rely on that. And they can bring a lot. Yeah, they bring a lot of rocks into the beach if the holdfast is big enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it does a lot of food provisioning for the uh, beach. You know, you've got all the little flies and and um, insects, and then all the seabirds that eat that. Right. Um, but the bull kelp also does food provisioning for the deeper water. So a lot of that, uh, those blades will break off and then they'll fall down into the, to the deeper waters where, where kelps and algae don't grow. And that does food provisioning for some of those ecosystems as well. So it's a very important uh, feature that the near shore is provisioning both the beach as well as the deeper water. Yeah, exactly. I, I was just going to observe when you mentioned that, that uh, I've seen floating bull kelp 25 plus miles offshore. Uh -huh. so it can carry new, you know, that near shore nutrition a long way out. Exactly. And those floating paddies out there, um, they really attract a lot of, of larvae. Um, yeah. larval fishes and all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, in Hawaii, they, they put out artificial, they call them fads, the fish aggregating devices. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of the smaller fish and, and um, crustaceans will get attracted to it. And then you get some of the nice big, big fish for that, that we like to uh, go fishing for. So herring fishermen in Alaska will put out uh, a, a bunch of kelp, and uh, the, the herring lay their eggs on it. Then they sell the, uh, mostly to Japan, they sell the, the uh, egg-laden uh, blades to, for food. Yeah, and they, the fishermen do that in um, San Francisco Bay as well, uh -huh, uh -huh. the Rowan kelp fisheries. Yeah. yeah. I've seen uh, migrating terns, common tern and arctic tern, resting on floating kelp 20 miles offshore. And there's nice. not much else out there to to no. stand on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Take a little break from their pelagic life. I've seen blue herons sitting on the <laughs> right offshore. Uh, yeah, that's near yes. shore. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird sight to be 25 miles offshore and see you know floating kelp and then see a bird standing on the water at, mm -hmm. know, that far out. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, and our guest tonight is Dr. Laura Rogers-Bennett of the Bodega Marine Laboratory. And our topic uh, that we've started off with anyway is uh, a follow-up on the kelp situation that most of you are familiar with. Uh, it's a question that I was asked uh, about eight years ago now is, what's going on with the kelp? And that's been an annual question ever since as we've gone through some really bizarre events. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to the urchins, you mentioned, you know, the purple urchin and their their role in this. And one of the questions that I think comes up sometimes is, uh, why isn't this system self-limiting? Normally, when one population of grazers gets out of control, they fairly quickly eat all the available food and then, you know, starve and die and their population crashes and things return to some kind of equilibrium. But that doesn't seem to be happening here. No, um, I think it has to do with, uh, you know, echinoderms in general 
do undergo these large population fluctuations, booms and busts. Um, we see it with crown of thorns starfish down in Australia. They can eat a coral reef and have been a very big uh, predator of corals. And so when their populations boom, that's a bad sign for corals in the region. Um, and we've also seen this with uh, a whole suite of the echinoderms, especially urchin. Um, one of the things about urchin that makes them so resilient to starvation is um, they can really sit and utilize dissolved organics. So if they are able to uh, put their tube feet out into the water, they're able to utilize some of that dissolved carbon in the water column itself. Um, they also have this amazing ability to really eat almost anything. So we've seen a lot of the urchin in our area now in the barrens where their guts are full of sand. So they're eating that bacteria that's in between the sand grains. Um, we've also seen them where they're full of the crustose corallin algae. So that's something that most uh, organisms don't eat, but the sea urchins appear to be able to eat that to some degree. Um, and, you know, I've seen them eating anemones and fallen jellyfish and all kinds of strange things. So they, they can scavenge um, as well as eat the algae, whereas some of our other organisms like abalone have a very narrow diet. They are are strict algae eaters. They, they can't really um, eat that huge range of foods that, that urchin can. Um, urchin can also uh, maintain for a very long time without growing. So they can just sit and, um, you know, they can utilize some of the uh, protein matrix that's between the plates on their shell, on their tests. So they have an amazing ability to withstand starvation, unlike a lot of other crit animals. So they can live on almost nothing. That's Yes. That's just, yeah. You mentioned wow. uh, uh, dissolved organics being absorbed. I think it was in a fellow named Grover Stevens back in the 60s. I think it was at UC Irvine and did a lot, bunch of experiments showing that they can take up dissolved amino acids directly from seawater. Exactly. Yeah. And I think they took some of the seawater from the uh, from some of the sewage effluent and sewage pipes, yeah. and they were able to show that the urchin could survive just in in that water, uh, taking wow. up that effluent. So they're very resilient. They've been you know present in the oceans for uh, I think a little over 400 million years. So I guess mm -hmm. in that time they've learned a few tricks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that people have been asking about in terms of urchin is if we have so many urchin in the system, why don't we just, uh, you know, turn the urchin fishermen loose on them and, and harvest them away? But the, the difficulty there is when the kelp is gone, 
and um, they haven't had a lot to eat, then they don't produce that nice roe that the urchin fishermen are fishing for. So when you chop them open, they are basically empty inside. So they're really not of any fishery value for us when they're outside of the kelp forest. If they get kelp or, or uh, some of the other algae, the red algae, then they can grow that nice, beautiful row that the, that the urchin divers are fishing for, and we can sell those and, and sell them to the marketplace. So that's, that's the issue. They're also um, quite a bit smaller than the commercial red urchin. They are, yes. They're a lot smaller. Um, but there's one company, um, and there are a few companies who are very interested in what they're calling urchin ranching. And that is bringing in uh, urchin that are basically empty and, and of no food value into the laboratory or into their, uh, their facilities and uh, feeding them a algae pellet. So, you know, when, uh, when we all eat sushi, we get a nice square of uh, algae to roll up our, our sushi with, well, of course, it doesn't come as a perfect square. So there are cutoffs, uh, you know, discarded portions of the algae, and they can take that and grind it up and make a little pellet, and then they can feed that to the urchin. And we've done some experiments in our lab in, in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy and some other folks, the, the company um, Urchinomics, who's developed this feed. Um, and what we showed at, in Bodega was that if you bring in these empty purple urchin and you feed them for about uh, 12 weeks or so, that you can get a really nice seafood product from these adult urchin that used to be empty uh, that get fattened up in the ranching process and uh, that that would make a very nice um, seafood product. So, uh, you know, in collaboration with the folks at the Bodega Marine Lab and our um, aquatic resources group and the urchinomics group, uh, we've been trying to figure out what kinds of flows and temperatures and densities and how much do you feed them and, and what's the optimal way to do some of this ranching. So um, I think that will be something that will be important to uh, you know, track over the next couple of years to see if we can make improvements on utilizing some of these excess purple urchin that are that are not good for the system, the, the, uh, the ecosystem. We want to take them out of the system, but um, we might be able to use some of those bigger individuals for, for ranching. Do you have to worry about the uh, urchin spawning and the, and the larvae getting out the, back into the ocean if you have a flow-through seawater system? Yes, and I think also for the spawning question is, um, you know, if you uh, are ranching them and it's winter when they're traditionally getting ready to spawn, they will bring on a lot of excess water to, um, to spawn with. And then the 
uh, uni inside the urchin gets all soft and mushy and, and it interferes with the quality of the product. So there's all kinds of issues that uh, need to be thought through and, and worked out um, to, to maximize the, uh, the quality of the ranched product. But it's a very exciting um, idea that Urchinomics has. They, they've been doing this now in Norway and Japan and I think they'd be interested to to work with folks in California as well. Fascinating, yeah, and because the the urchin divers can bring these things up in very large quantities. Oh, sure, quickly. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the question is, what do you do with them? Exactly. So one of the the other creative uh, solutions that folks in Mendocino have been thinking about, you know, I'm I'm talking about some of the work that. Um, Sheila Siemens has been doing up at the Noyo Science Center, uh, reaching out and collaborating with some of the companies in Mendocino that create compost. Mm -hmm. So, of course, urchin is very calcium rich. Their shell is, is uh, calcium carbonate. And so um, they've been working with Fortunate Farms and some of these other places thinking about, you know, how can we use some of these excess urchin from Mendocino? How can we use them in Mendocino to help us? Maybe we could create some lovely compost for the the wineries, for the for the wine and the and the grapes and the grape growing. Um, so there's all kinds of uh, interesting things that that can be done with the urchin um, and that people are exploring and thinking about. Yeah, that I, uh, I know, I know Gowan and, and we've had Sheila on the show before too. So oh, wonderful. Yes. I, I think we'll probably have to follow up uh, with them on that and see Absolutely. where the status yes. of that project. I gave composting uh, urchins a try myself and discovered the complexity of that. Uh, it seems like a perfect match because the soils around here are depleted in calcium yes the, the the major mineral nutrient that we lack in 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 our garden soil here is calcium and and it's a real really holds back a lot of plants uh but getting it in a usable form and not getting a whole bunch of salt is one of the key issues there yes uh, and that's getting... a slow release calcium so uh, you know, it might not be readily accessible for the plants immediately, but but over time. Yeah, which is a better way to do it anyway. Most of mm -hmm. us are doing this long term. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. We should follow up with that. So um, can you uh, oh, I, go ahead, Bob? I just wanted to follow up with uh, where we're at with the, with the kelp populations. It sounds like it's a kind of a year to year thing. And but are there reasons to believe that the oceanographic conditions that might uh, encourage healthy uh, plant growth or we're in one of those cycles where those are likely to happen frequently or uh, I guess we have to worry about the next heat wave as well. Uh, maybe that's going to yes. push them back where they were once. Yes, so um, it looks as though we've had a few years now that um, we've had some pretty good conditions for kelp, uh, particularly in that winter time frame. 
which appears to be very important, um, as well as the spring, because of course, during the spring is when those sporophytes are, are really growing and um, they go from that very tiny little stringer kelp where you just see a little tiny ball um, to, to the full bull kelp that you see in, in uh, mature in, in midsummer. Uh, so we've had a few years now that looked pretty good oceanographically. Uh, but as I say, that uh, pattern now, that tight correlation between a good ocean cool uh, conditions and good kelp growth has been decoupled because we've got way too many urchin in the system. So even though we've had good uh, cool waters, we still haven't seen the kelp bounce back like it should. So um, if we look at some of those satellite imagery, and this is the work of um, some folks down at UC Santa Cruz, Meredith McPherson has been working with uh, Tom Bell, who's at UC Santa Barbara. So the two of them have been looking at how do we use these Landsat satellites and get images of the North Coast and get a snapshot in time. Uh, and what they try and find is a day in the late August, early September, which is the peak of our bull kelp season where it's, um, it's most mature. And they have to get a day that um, has no cloud cover. <laughs> so for us in, in Sonoma, Mendocino in the, in the summer, that can be a trick. Uh, but they get these images and then they calculate the amount of area that the kelp canopy is covering. Um, how many square kilometers is covered? And... What they've been finding is that over this 34-year time series that they've developed using the satellites, I think they're using the Landsat um, 578. Um, and what they're doing is seeing that even in 2020 and 2021, we really didn't have uh, a whole lot of kelp back yet. We do have small patches of kelp along the coast, and that's critical because um, those small patches are able to produce a lot of spores. So if we had zero patches and zero bull kelp, then restoration and recovery would be very difficult. But with these little pockets of kelp, uh, we're very encouraged that um, the kelp will be able to turn around once urchin populations and ocean conditions uh, become more favorable. Yeah, we anecdotally, we it, it seems that locally here in Mendocino, the, the 2019 was the nadir, that uh, there were very little kelp visible from shore or even from, uh, you know, out in, I go out in the ocean fairly regularly and there was little kelp to be found at all in 2019. And then in 2020 and, and last year, 2021, especially, we saw a pretty good comeback here locally. But as you say, it was still a fraction of the former canopy yes, size. Yes, exactly. It's, yeah. We're still down, uh, you know, probably 
85% of what, what we normally see. Um, and I think that that sort of, uh, those small patches are really critical. And there's some thought now in terms of the uh, kelp recovery planning. Um, the Ocean Protection Council has, has uh, developed a new kelp uh, plan for all of California, uh, kelp restoration type planning. And I think some of the thinking now, uh, which is very similar to what a lot of the urchin divers have been thinking about, is if we see some of these small patches, we may want to shift our efforts to protect those small patches. So um, we're still really trying to dial in what are some of the best uses of the urchin removal, because, of course, that's very labor intensive. Um, but, you know, protecting some of those existing patches might be a, a very good solution for us um, moving forward. And um, I think that, that uh, you know, some of the some of the divers that have been working up in Mendocino um, have been working on different technology uh, to do to help us. And I, Sheila Siemens has been working closely with some of the divers, and um, they've been working on developing an airlift. So this would be like an an underwater vacuum cleaner almost to try and uh, suck up some of the urchin into the boat and, and remove larger swaths of, of, clear larger swaths of area to help with the, the kelp restoration in that way. I think I've seen, I've seen a boat using that, yeah. Yeah, I think John, uh, do you guys know, know uh, John Holcomb who is one of the red commercial red urchin divers. He's been working to develop a airlift and um, some of the other urchin divers, uh, Downey and, and some of those guys have been working hard to uh, clear areas to keep, keep the urchin out. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX and our guest tonight is Dr. Laura Rogers Bennett of the Bodega Marine Laboratory couple questions occurred to me as you're talking. Um, one, uh, there's been experimental application, at least when I was up in Alaska, doing some restoration work on the Exxon Valdez. Uh, uh, people were trying out a kind of a penetrating radar called LIDAR uh, that would get around the cloud cover thing and then penetrate into even fairly cloudy water 10 or 20 meters. I was wondering if that ever happened. And the second thing is, uh, is anybody keeping track of the urchin populations beside the work that ReefCheck does in certain places in Mendocino of the general population trends in, in urchins to kind of see where they're, where they're headed and where they're going to crash? And what yes. they're gonna... Yeah, I think that's very important to do. Um, you know, one of the big take-home messages, I think, that some of the big environmental catastrophes, such as this one, um, the collapse of our kelp forest, is really telling us is that the future may look 
very different than what we've seen in the past. And so trying to predict um, what might happen with climate change is very challenging. And so one of the best strategies, I think, um, is to be actively monitoring because um, we just don't know how our systems are going to respond. We haven't seen a marine heat wave that lasted that long and was that intense before. And we didn't see we didn't see the purple urchin wave uh, coming, you know, we, we didn't right. think that that would happen to our region. So um, the reason why we were able to talk with people in, you know, early 2016 and tell them that things are really dire was because we've had a lot of monitoring of the near shore kelp forest ecosystem for the past 20 years. And we could see that things were way different than what we had seen in the past. So um, our group with Fish and Wildlife and with UC Davis, we do the kelp forest monitoring um, in Sonoma and Mendocino counties at some key locations. And um, we have those data and we can tell you for example, how many urchin there used to be in the system and how many there are now. Um, the same with, with uh, the sea stars. Of course, we haven't spoken too much about the sea stars, but um, starting around 2013 or so in our area, we started to see the impact of the sea star wasting disease on our local starfish. Um, and what happened was populations crashed and then many of them have come back. Many of the Pisaster, for example, the okra, okra stars, um, the bat stars, many of those stars have come back, but we now have one local extinction and that is the big sunflower stars. So you probably know, you know, they're a meter across They're they're hard to miss. 20 arms, um, you know, many, many arms and very big. And they eat a lot of urchin um, and they're locally extinct. And we've just, um, our lab has worked to contribute our uh, sunflower star data to a larger coastwide effort from Alaska down to uh, Baja, California, Mexico. Um, for the International Union of Conservation of Nature, IUCN. And they did a big uh, assessment of sunflower stars with a bunch of labs contributing all their, their data. We were just one of maybe 18 groups that contributed information. And what they found was that they're pretty much locally extinct from Oregon down into Baja, California. Wow. Wow. And that just happened. That that's, that just happened. It means there's absolutely none or they're just so few that they, they're essentially extinct. I think, you know, one team found one in the Channel Islands two summers ago. Our team saw one in uh, Sonoma County five summers ago. Mm. But yeah. yeah. Wow. That's so pretty much. 
they're, they're gone. either completely extinct or functionally extinct. Yeah. Yeah. So are there other populations? There, yes, elsewhere? there are populations up in Washington State, British Columbia, and Southern Alaska. Uh, but they also have suffered big declines. Huh. One of the reasons I've always advocated for more monitoring is because the monitoring generates the research questions that then feed back and tell you a lot about how the system works and maybe even tell you how to better monitor. So there's a kind of interaction there that goes on in terms of scientific policy that's, that's really, really useful. Yeah. Really important. You know, I feel like it's sort of, you know, uh, feet on the ground kind of, you know, make sure that you keep your eyes open to the system because, um, you know, you, you can't rely on, on models to tell you what's going to happen with these big uh, climate change impacts. And so there were, and, and I'm just going to say that there was kind of a, 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 a general understanding going on that it was the heat wave that wiped out the uh, starfish through the wasting disease. The starfish uh, weren't eating as many urchins. The urchins exploded, ate the kelp. Uh, kelp went away, hurt the abalone, uh, but you know maybe that thing isn't completely as tight as we want to imagine, and maybe maybe uh, there's a lot more factors involved in uh, the fluctuations of all those interacting populations. I don't know if you had. Yeah, absolutely. We had, um, for example, we in our region had. Uh, sea star wasting in 2013 when we had some of the coldest water um, that we've had in years. So we we did have wasting during the cold 2013 year. Right. Um, so I think a lot more needs to be studied there. We do know that wasting seems to increase with heat. So there is a connection there, but... Um, you know, we don't understand a whole lot about sea star diseases, any kind of derm diseases in general. Um, the other thing was that in 2014, we lost our kelp in, in Sonoma and Mendocino County. And that was uh, slightly before the urchins took off uh, in population numbers. So it looks like they did get impacted by the marine heat wave the kelp did um, early on. Of course, now the urchin are exacerbating uh, the the kelp come bouncing back. Um, and I think some of the information that we we gathered from the satellite imagery data that thirty four years of a time series, you see a lot of fluctuations in the kelp. You know, you'll have really good kelp years and really bad kelp years. But there are very few times in that time series where you've got three bad years in a row. And we've just lived through seven bad years. Yeah. So that's the big difference for the kelp forest ecosystem and all the animals that depend on kelp is they can probably make it through one or two bad years, but when you've got multiple bad years in a row, that's when you start to see the mass mortalities like we did for, for red abalone. 
So in 2017 and 2018, uh, our team was out at uh, four sites. No, let's see, five sites in Mendocino and four sites in Sonoma County. We were able to cover nine sites in 2017 um, and seven sites in 2018. And of the 9,090 red abalone that we saw, 40% were dead. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge mass mortality event following all those years of poor kelp. Um, and I think many people listening to the program probably saw lots of abalone shells washed up on the beach those summers, especially when the winter storms brought them onto the beach. Um, oh, yeah. So oh, we yeah. had a big decline. Yeah, I saw the bounty of abalone shell for the people who were collecting it for jewelry. It was uh, it was unprecedented. Yeah, the yeah. beach right, yeah. the beach right in front, and it was, in front of my house. And it, I had uh, abalone still in the shells. Uh, right. Probably not. Just recently died, washed up. Uh, I guess they couldn't mm -hmm. hold on to the rocks very well once they got pretty. And sick. it was day after day. It wasn't like it just happened once. Yeah, it, yeah, it just, yeah. You just kept getting dead abalone on the beach every day and i've heard every day bonanza for the gulls too yeah. boy i'll tell you the yeah. gulls really dug it yeah yeah and so i've heard rumors that, the, that there's a lot of small abalone out there right now but i don't know if that's been uh documented or not yeah yeah we're starting to see some more of the small ones and um a lot of the abalone have moved into the shallow water um uh -huh. You know, water, say, less than 15 feet. Um, there's a lot more algae in that strip. That's the short red algae. Because, as I say, we don't have as much of the, the big brown kelps. But we do have some of that short red algae in that narrow band closer to shore. And so a lot of the abalone have moved from the deeper water into the shallows. Um, some places they're they're you know ten feet and shallower. Well, you know, um, yeah, there, there was a big minus tides earlier this year, and there were a lot. There were quite a few abalone visible. I know yes. when I used to yeah. used to dive for abalone at the beginning of the season, there were quite a few abalone in shallow, and then those yeah. those got harvested. And, and towards the end of the season, to to get those numbers, you had to dive to twenty five or thirty feet, which most people don't do. And exactly. so it was one of those in and out things that would happen uh, over the uh, annual cycle. Mm -hmm. and you, and put on tanks and go down to 60 feet, there's abalone all over the place. Oh, the, or the, yes. the rows. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then um, what about the urchins? They, they don't particularly like that shallow water because of the, the surge, right? The reds, yeah, the reds are mostly more subtitle and they prefer the, the deeper water. Um, but the purple urchin, they are very well adapted to the, the surge and the, the wave action. They, they uh, live in the intertidal areas as well. So they can even withstand some of um, the low tides and getting exposed to air. But the red urchin can't. 
They're too big. And the purple urchin, uh, they often, if the rock is soft enough, they'll actually get a little solution basin that they that they, they'll sit in, and that'll give some mm-hmm. extra protection from the surge. Yeah, um, they they have um, uh, teeth, and they're able to scour out a little uh, crevice and they uh, a pocket, yeah. and they'll be in that pit right, there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see that. that, especially at Point Arena on the south side of the pier a little bit. Mm-hmm. In that shallow water, there's this uh, a lot of that flat, more sandstone, and you can see all the urchin pits in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're uh, down to, uh, I think, about the last five minutes of the show right now. Uh, Dr. Laura, Dr. Rogers Bennett, this has been a really fascinating discussion uh and there's a lot more that i'd like to talk about you mentioned other species that depend on the kelp and one you know mine my mind immediately goes to fish of course but um yes one of the species that is both dependent on kelp and that kelp is partly dependent on uh that's part of this whole story is the the otters the sea otters and exactly uh, yeah, they often get left out of the story because they were pretty much extirpated before we started studying this ecosystem. But they have a, a huge role in the current crisis, right? Because they were the primary Absolutely. predator on purple urchins. Yes, exactly. And if you go to Monterey, of course, um, where we still have, uh, you know, otter populations. Uh, we are also seeing big increases in purple urchin in the Monterey region, which is concerning. Um, Reef Check has been doing a bunch of dives there, and they have a number of sites that they've been actively monitoring for, for many years now. And what they're saying and telling us is that approximately 40% of their sites have uh, converted from kelp forest into urchin barrens in the Monterey area. Interesting, even with all those otters around. Yes, so the otters still uh, eat some urchin, but they're not eating as many as you would think because the urchin, of course, as we mentioned before, when there's not a lot of kelp, they're mostly empty inside. So there's not a lot of food value for the otters either, just as there isn't for us. So um, they do eat more urchin than um, they have been eating in the past. But there's a grad student down at UC Santa Cruz who's been studying the changes in the otter diet related to the sea urchins. And um, they've been showing that while they do eat more, they don't eat um, a ton because there's not a lot inside them. Hmm. Well, that's discouraging. I know. <laughs> yeah. I thought they were the great hope. I know. <laughs> yeah, could, we just get we, otters back and uh, and everything problem solved. Couldn't we yeah. give, them, yeah. give them little hammers or something? Yes, no. exactly. Feed them sardines. They already have, feed them sardines they already have little they hammers. They, they pick up stones. That's yeah. how they eat them. Yeah. yeah, they do have a really interesting uh, citizen science project that's happening down there. Uh, Keith Rootsart is 
working um, on a project called the Giant Giant Kelp Project, and they are removing a, all the purple urchin from this one offshore reef, Tankers Reef, and they are um, actively monitoring and protecting that reef. And they have a control area nearby where they haven't done any removals. And so they're looking to see the impacts and they're in sea otter territory there. So, so we'll see what happens. It's, yeah. it's a great project. And uh, I encourage divers if they wanna go down to the Monterey area to go uh, talk with those guys and get involved. Of course, well, there's is... lots of good good uh, projects up here to get involved with as well. So uh, you know, talk talk with all the divers and and become a part of the become a part of the solution here. There we go. Yeah, I I think we'll get from you some links to some of those projects and uh, places where people can get more information, find out what can be done and how they might be able to help. Uh, as well as some yeah, make, make contact, additional information yeah, on the problem. Make con that sounds great. Make contact with the Noyo Center and uh, who mm -hmm. incidentally have a new facility down right on the on the Noyo River and uh, yeah. took over one of the old restaurants. And so they're getting closer to having their fingers in the water. And uh, <laughs> yes. that's good. And then the reef checks, another possibility. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, great, great groups working on uh, a lot of these important issues. Good. Well, we'll we'll put some more. We'll put that information on our website, which again is ecologyhour.wordpress.com, and you can follow up there and find out more information about that. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Laura Rogers Bennett of the Bodega Marine Laboratory, and. Uh, Dr. Bennett, uh, Rogers Bennett, thank you so much for updating us on what's going on. In fact, we kind of learned a bunch more things than we uh, than we had heard about in all the previous discussions we've had about the kelp. Yeah, thanks for being right. thanks for being on with us. Uh, your your combination of uh, you know knowing the literature and what's going on around the world with your kind of hands on approach. Uh, including a lot of work in Mendocino County. Uh, it's been a delight talking to you and very informative. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been fun to talk with you both and, uh, and uh, hope all your listeners are able to uh, get involved with the projects. Yeah, I sure hope so. Uh, we, uh, there's a lot of people that would like to help here for sure. Well, thanks very much. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.